right, this one's going to go out to Joe Rogan and how, what is wrong with the USA and why would he ever be a worthy moderator of a presidential debate? So if any of you have perused the athletic scandal that is my Instagram, which my siblings would have you believe automatically makes me the devil incarnate and dishonoring the entire family more than Mulan, both of which occurred for just being a woman I would like to note, then you would probably know I'm not too fond of Joe Rogan. So my disdain at the very thought that he would facilitate a presidential debate was even more disheartening. I already want to put my head through a goddamn wall like Mike Sorrentino did that one season of Jersey Shore where they went to Italy. Season four, maybe? It's been a while. But this just tips those scales ever so slightly. So who is Joe Rogan? A brief overview. American Comedian host of one of the world's most popular podcasts, several of which hosted some of the 2020 Democratic presidential candidates like Andrew Yang, Tulsi Gabbard, Bernie Sanders, has had a plethora of political figures, public figures, scientists relevant to U.S. history, and possibly like the rest of this discussion, including Edward Snowden, Elon Musk, and my personal favorite, Eliza Schlesslinger. (laughs) Uh, he's the commentator for Ultimate Fighting Championship, UFC, the patrons of which arguably make up the largest part of his audience, from my personal experience and interactions with men in the wild. And he's probably the only reason um, he has any actual political poll is because our government and cultural values as a country are so fucking corrupt that we somehow don't see this as a global embarrassment. And money equals power in good old capitalism, so this guy must get it, right? So why am I skeptical about this? To sum it up, we're about to dive into a rabbit hole of how Joe Rogan embodies the American experience of exactly what pisses me off most about our patriarchal culture and why he is absolutely, undeniably the wrong choice as moderator of a presidential debate, but particularly a presidential debate in the setting of a global pandemic, which he has previously downplayed, where distribution of wealth is a regular issue, and this guy plays with which state to relocate to like it's a board game based on property taxes. This is the people's livelihood at stake. Have some fucking class. And we already know And we already have one too many white men who think they're going to be the one with the world-class mentality of saving. Literally, at this point, we just want our own voices. Like, you don't need to step in asserting yourself to represent us. How about you help get us into those positions? But I digress. Let's all take one giant leap back, mankind. To properly get into this... I'm going to delve into my own background as an athlete and what I've come to focus on with my own worldviews now that I'm well into my 20s and obviously know all. It'll be worth it, I promise. By now, you should probably realize all of my writing comes full circle at some point. Um, So, 
From the time I could walk, I was playing sports with the decision that I was Olympic quality being made prior to my conception. My dad played in the minor league baseball circuits on his summer's home in New York from Embry-Riddle, and he played triple-A ball with a team that fed the Yankees. My mom, a mathematician in D.C., graduated from Penn State after being an NCAA D1 collegiate runner. The genetics were in place, and my siblings and I were destined for greatness." Growing up, running was always just my way to stay in shape. Sure, I competed for like middle school track, which is in Maryland, two practices that showing up at a meet against the other local middle schools. And then in high school, we had cross country, indoor and outdoor track, but I never actually trained for it with any structure. My high school coach had been the same person who coached my mom back in the day. And this man literally led us, kids under the age of 18 with no personal experience or knowledge on what healthy running is, to choose the workouts. Our boys team played a variation of like four square for practice called M squared. I stayed in shape though, playing multiple sports a season, attending two official practices a day once I got to high school, sometimes three. Usually there was one or two for my actual high school and then one or two for my travel teams of some sport. And I never once slowed down. That was my norm, though, and seems to be the norm for most of America in this rat race of endless exhaustion we call a free market. So when I was old enough to walk, I was enrolled in gymnastics three hours a day, six days a week. Some days I cried about being at practice. Other days, all I wanted to do was climb that creepily high rope and make the long drop into the foam pit. I had a six-pack by age five and spent my brother's baseball games practicing my back handsprings along the baseline past the dugouts. We also grew up on a farm, so not only did I have to attend practices for all of my sports, but riding horses regularly was considered a chore, not a practice, and horses take a lot of daily work. It is a rare person I come across that understands the full impact growing up on a, par- on a farm has on a person. If it was light outside, though, and I wasn't at practice for one of my sports, I was usually found somewhere on or near my ponies. So after I was exhausted with practice, I usually had to go take care of my horses and only then could I eat, shower, or sleep. Side note, I actually think that's why wrestling attracts so many Midwestern boys. They're used to working these insane schedules and intensities of workouts from what it means to be like country folk. But they're also all of the country folk who question authority, but in like a good way, often just not one that's necessarily viewed as beneficial to all of society when it's not constructively channeled. We'll touch back on wrestling in a little bit. So in middle school, the decision came to discontinue competitive gymnastics due in time to due to time constraints with my growing equestrian career. Um, inserted in its time slot on my schedule was travel soccer, something I'd be able to do with like the rest of the crowd in high school. Uh, and quitting gymnastics at 13 years old also let me finally hit puberty. So I scaled back from like 4'11 to 5'7 over the course of one year and entered high school ready to continue leveling up my athletic career just as much. But in high school, I went from sport to sport, searching for that desperate endorphin high to target my frustration at everything. My parents, siblings, the mean girls in my grade, one of whom was my best friend or friend of me, uh, boys, the world, Hannah Montana being canceled, you name it. Like Taylor Swift's saying, I was an impossible pace and only forced to slow down when ninth grade year of travel soccer, some stupid bitch illegally slide tackled me from straight behind. Terrible form. What are you, a Duke basketball player 
What a dirty fucking play. I fell straight onto my clavicle, completely severing it in half and displacing it by two inches. Now, I'm not a very big person. My clavicles are rather dainty, in fact. My upper body is actually the one place I hold almost no weight. It was gross. My arm was just hanging limply. And if there was any question to whether that love for the adrenaline rush had fucked me up, it was answered in that moment because I still tried to play. We were already a man down having had a red card and been down a man to start the match. And I couldn't sit on the sideline and just watch. Plus, I had been sent with another parent via carpool. So my mom wasn't even there to take me to the hospital and I had to wait a three-hour bumpy-ass car ride home to get there. The only choice was obviously to fucking play. And if you wonder where the determination comes from, I've always had it. Earlier that fall, I had just decided one day that I wanted to play football. I jumped into some of my older brother's practices growing up, so why wouldn't I be able to do it at the high school level? I could hold my own against him and Royce and Alex, who were the best on the Waldorf Wildcats, All of the boys in high school had just been on different teams they'd beaten. So when I joined the freshman football team, much to the dismay of several of the boys' parents, and wore a glitter eyeshadow to every single game, even though my dad drove me over 30 minutes from my high school soccer game to my high school football game in the neighboring county, it was my first game. I couldn't miss, you know, the first football game. And my kick never had a shot. Because I got my experience of what I can only imagine is like a fraction of what freshman fraternity members all across the USA experience with hazing. So as I leaned forward, moving to kick with the snap of the ball, my entire line decided to stand up and move aside. They let three huge linemen from Chopticon have a clear shot to my very first kick in a game ever. I anime style judo thrown about 10 yards directly behind me by three 200 pound plus linemen who had just seen me roughly 110 pounds at the time five foot seven frame long blonde hair swinging girl running across the track to join my team's huddle and despite being tall I was scrawny in the way most ninth grade girls are and we had to borrow my shoulder pads from the local pound ball team. Small clavicles, remember? It was one of those moments where like the entire stadium's quiet, sure that I was dead. When Laquan, my amazing holder, side note, he transferred and his replacement deserves the following message. Fuck you, Madison Talley. You and I both know exactly what you did. Uh, but so when Laquan came up to offer me a hand and check on me, Already waving the coaches over, assuming I was hurt, he was so surprised to find me laughing hysterically and basically being like, what the fuck, guys? Do you think I've never been tackled before? It's almost like these men forgot I grew up with an older brother or riding horses or doing gymnastics. I am used to eating complete shit and taking it like a motherfucking champ. So... Two games later, I kicked the 27-yard winning field goal against an otherwise undefeated magnet school that could essentially recruit its football team, who later went on to win states our senior year, which, if you grew up in a small town, you know basically certifies your celebrity status amongst the good old hometown boys. 
And in track earlier that winter, I had made it to the top of SMAC as a freshman in every distance event. My coach believed it was our duty to help out our team as much as possible. So knowing I would kill myself to score as much as I could, he put me in the 4 by 8 the 1600 the 3200 and the 800 So a half mile, mile, two mile, and 800 I ran four miles of racing one to two times a week for three months and just kept moving up on the in the rankings. At nights, there were foot, foot sole practices and weekends were balanced with like series of co-ed games. I had the time, so why not? Spring track was just like the winter and despite being coached by other high school athletes, which is honestly the most inappropriate thing for any kind of distance running in particular, I was still performing at generally unprecedented levels for a freshman. The signs were all there for me to just keep staying right on track, (laughs) pun intended. But then the clavicle break happened just after my spring season ended um, in the midst of travel soccer. So my summer was just spent recovering and I had only really missed a season of travel soccer. Plus, a broken bone by high school was basically standard procedure. I had already broken like three bones in my foot on two separate occasions. The the person responsible for one of those actually had a really terrible bout of cancer a few years back um, and ultimately passed. So I kind of look on that memory a little more fondly now, as weird as it is. Um, I also inherited my father's clumsiness. So I'd broken multiple toes separate from those foot fractures. Seriously, like one time I broke my toe climbing out of giving my dog a bath in the tub. It got caught in my towel and twisted. I am an accident waiting to happen. For the most part, though, gymnastics taught me how to beat the shit out of my body, but safely. Um, I will actually never forget what others must have seen all the times I'd skirted injuries prior. Um, Then when I was watching my best friend Anna sprinting after a guy in our dorm on, like, the outside railings. (laughs) And I slowly watched her lean forward, and she was drunk as shit. And I was in my head, I'm just sitting there going, there's no way in hell this ends well. And like, we're in concrete college dorms. I'm just like preparing for the worst. I'm thinking she's going off this fourth floor and she's dying. Like that, that's how my mind works. And so she just seamlessly, full sprint, dives into like this forward roll, so drunk and continues undisturbed, like just like rolls right into her sprint again and without missing a beat um and then like you know my dad has broken all of his fingers several times his nose and like a plethora of other fractures and my mom grew up on an Appaloosa horse farm that I was now growing up on and you see a lot of gruesome injuries on farms like injuries like this were simply a part of life and part of loving the sport so much Um, My lack of nerve endings and ability to tolerate pain in a variety of abnormal ways now is probably part of what contributes to my love of all sexual exploration, interestingly enough. Um, So by the time I finished high school, I had lettered in 14 different varsity sports. Uh, Mind you, we only had three seasons. (laughs) In track alone, I was moved from my distance events 
um, the 4x8, 800, 1600, and 3200 quadruple H me into a mixture of like hurdles, steeplechase, 4x2s, 4x4s, even high jump, adapting and excelling like universally whatever he wanted to throw me in. Collecting trophies became an expectation and they no longer held significant meaning. I mean, I knew I had earned them because the work was tangibly there in documented physical performance, sweat, and muscle fatigue. I had moved into the ODP trajectory of soccer, acquired my C1 certification in Pony Club, competed in equestrian nationals. Um, I had placed 14th individually at cross-country states, the fourth hardest high school cross-country course in the nation, on just one week of practices after my soccer season was out. I had all-county, all-conference honors, the Wendy's High School Heisman State and National Finalist, accolade after accolade. Like, I had to you know, cut my resume down. And at the time, I'm sure I enjoyed sports for the recognition. Like winning each race or game or match was this necessity to somehow justify the hours of work had paid off. I was occasionally in the paper for things like when I stopped to help my fellow smack competitor mid-race of that same state championship cross-country race. But the idea of sportsmanship felt weird. Because I still made sure I didn't fucking let her beat me when she regained her composure on the course and was right behind me. Um, So in college, my freshman year was the first time I actually didn't feel a need to compete. So after finally loosening up my reservations, I drank alcohol for the first time in my life. I determined that partying was fun. Still love it. You can find me at 11 in Miami instead of a frat party, though. But I craved the structure of routine and performance that sports had always given me. My goals in life didn't revolve around grinding up on our seven-foot-tall NBA-bound basketball athletes under the neon fixture, intricately balanced above a questionably constructed frat house basement stage, much as those men may have wanted them to. Seriously, PJ Harrison, stop sliding in my DMs asking me to suck your dick every time I post a throwback from Dance Marathon. The amount of now famous dicks I could have sucked if I didn't have a solid amount of self-respect. But also, no slut shaming here. I was just mentally recovering from a very abusive relationship and gobbling an endless array of dicks Nathan's hot dog contest style just wouldn't have benefited me in any way. Although it is a lot less cool to tell people that Trey Boston, current safety for the Carolina Panthers, tries to ass fuck women on the dance floor of Lorez and literally just shoved me over and pounded up against me as if he was actually fucking me. I'm not sure who taught you how to dance, buddy, but in the DMV, we get a lot more sensual than that. It's more Cassie's me and you theme than whatever Metallica level of hatred you had for crushing your dick against my backside in the 10 seconds before I pulled the plug completely disturbed. I will say that guy was one of my African studies partners. Honestly, incredible class. Shout out Pierce Freelon. Surprisingly, I know for UNC and NCAA athletes, especially the football team, insert shocked Pikachu gif. And to this day, I am genuinely curious as to what about me seemed like that was appropriate. Or what about being the only person in Lorez dancing made that seem like it was appropriate. Let's use some context clues next time before I have to lower your audacity like a character control on Madden. Anyway, I enjoyed my outfit class, 
because it was like group PE and I normally have to work out alone. So I did club gymnastics too, though without a proper coach, I just really couldn't trust my shoulder enough to throw or try what I used to do so freely. Um, Liability wise, public universities should probably at least make sure there are credentialed coaches and mentors overseeing their collegiate activities for students, even if those students are over 18. Um, just, you know, one more way to create fun jobs that don't make people hate their lives. Still, I miss competition that I could take seriously. I miss being part of like that togetherness, like the environment of a team. And the club track team was a possibility, but I just never really meshed with them. Um, I had come off, I come off naturally very dominant, try as I might not. In my first practice, uh, I hadn't run that summer. Remember, like I didn't have to at all for high school sports. And I got absolutely dropped on a run like three miles off the school's property with no knowledge of the way back to town, um, what direction I was in, what trail we were on, etc. Or even the names of the girls that I was with. And I didn't blame them though, because I was holding them back, you know, it just didn't make me want to return. Um, so that said, like the summer leading up to my sophomore year, I contacted the track coach from like the magnet school in my county, um, ones who misuse their vocational school programs to recruit for their athletic programs and was set onto what would then build into like a two year training program at its peak of 85 miles per week and running a 68 minute, 10 mile race on a difficult course. I had finally found like a group of equally nerdy, balanced, introverted and extroverted kids who needed to channel their energy into something productively. Even amongst the D1 circuit, it was like these oddballs now dispersed all over the globe that I finally found a positive sporting community. And distance running, unlike other sports, gives you time to think. Like distance runners tend to be the nerdier groups, the scientists, the introverts, because you can be completely unathletic and still be great at it. Seriously, picture your cross-country runners from high school. Those nerdy, lanky kids just turn into nerdy, lanky adults. I say that fondly as a fellow geek. I'm just cool passing because I'm physically attractive to most males under the white blonde American Barbie model. You also self-reflect during all of those miles. So at some point, having to confront your thoughts because it's just you and the dirt trail winding through the woods in front of you, we spend the most time in the natural world. So it makes sense that we often become the biologists, the conservationists, the environmentalists who eventually transition into doing triathlons, ultramarathons, or hiking the U.S. national parks in our later years. My parents were among many of those who believed that sports were my ticket to pay for college. They had tried to save money, but even they could never have anticipated how expensive colleges got or how I would be recruited for both academics and athletics nationally, yet then they would have the audacity to limit me to an in-state or more affordable option, even after my years of work and performance. Even when soccer recruiting fell through because they couldn't afford to pay for all of my travel teams and send me to camps over the summer, my mom was convinced that my switch into track would get me to the Olympics. Literally this summer, she even said the words, there's always cross-country skiing. Mother, there is also coronavirus. But unlike probably a lot of other athletes, I never really gave a fuck about the Olympics. I just enjoyed being athletic. I like the way it makes my body feel, the strength it gives me. I never thought about it past the practice at hand, the game coming up, when the season was progressing. Being an athlete was such a necessary part of who I was and am and as a person 
that no lack of title or performance achievement takes that away. After all of my accolades, the titles became meaningless after a while. Much like the current holder of the presidency, supposedly the most coveted position in the world, they lose their worth when they fail to recognize or be filled with actual value. Some of the best athletes I've ever met fall unnoticed through the cracks of exhaustion, and it wasn't lack of talent either. It was the inability to avoid other responsibilities in their daily lives, needing to commit to work to provide for their families and not even their own children, but like their parents' children or siblings' babies, or being unable to risk the potential health scare and not currently being insured. The looming threat of your, like your already meager savings despite working multiple jobs and well over the 40-hour work week for years, being decimated by the cost of healthcare too great a reality. How many people did I swipe through on Bumble who were in their 30s yet still like claimed washed-up athlete in their bio? But... My brother had walked onto his NCAA D1 collegiate baseball team after choosing a school for mechanical engineering, somehow finagling his way into getting paid for his contribution while also playing 91 games a season and having to stay in Columbia well into the summer until eventually going to Omaha, Nebraska for back-to-back-to-back College World Series championship games, two of which were victorious. Obviously, I needed to follow in his footsteps as that was expected. Everything he had done in life, I had also done or exceeded in some way. The spotlight must be mine. Never mind that I was already studying biochem at like a top five public university, which would, you know, win the Nobel Prize. Did I spell that right, Mr. Trump? (laughs) During my time there, I also needed to do more. He got to take batting practice with Bryce Harper, Jackie Bradley Jr., Grayson Greiner, and Christian Walker, all of whom are now living out his dreams of playing in the MLB while he hates his mechanical engineering position. So where do we draw the lines of success? At what point can I stop competing with my siblings in the eyes of my parents and society? Why is everyone always so obsessed with the stats of the players instead of who they are outside of that few hours of media devotion. Sports in the USA. Now, when I look back on that time and all of my achievement in sports in today's day and age, I have to stop and think about what it really means for me to be an athlete. This topic has come up a lot recently, particularly with the media and Colin Kaepernick's Black Lives Matter protests. A popular sentiment is the idea that an athlete such as Kabernick should stay in their lane. Your job is to play the game. We as the consumers are here to judge you. You're a vessel for being bet on. Hashtag sportsbook barstool sports. So that sentiment is routed in like the necessity of U.S. culture to root you into one career at age 18 for the rest of your life. Like Eminem says, you only get one shot. Do not miss your chance to blow. Gotta love that good old influential of a patriarchal society built around militaristic values. That government propaganda to encourage patriotism under the duress of war and trapping you in a career of military life because you no longer fit in with the normal population and they make no efforts to rehabilitate you unless moving out west counts 
and foundations of individual priorities for a nation of 3 billion people, yeah, that sounds very sustainable, you dumb fucking twats, seeps into the economy by normalizing thousands of dollars of debt, remaining in a job even if you hate it, as long as it pays decently, because you should be lucky to even have one, or how we should be lucky with our ability to speak out in favor of different conditions portrayed as radical social movements instead of progress because the alternative is what a communist regime so as an athlete you're gifted with the ability to use your presence but not necessarily your voice it's a bit of the consumer is always right mentality that gluttonizes our supersize me brethren of west virginia gremlins there's a lot of good about hicks for the record Um, that instills this false narcissism that they should also somehow dictate programming. And who can argue with that logic when the end goal is ratings and viewership? So the phrase hashtag more than an athlete becomes a social media movement because it's necessary. The very idea that an athlete or any public figure for that matter is an actual human being and not a corporate-controlled lizard person is blasphemous to the people who actually need to be reminded. But this has been a common theme throughout sports history. How has our education failed us such that people can so easily forget the incredibly vast history of utilizing sports to make a political stance throughout history? Why was this news? How is it that we thought it was controversial that a black man wanted to protest statistically proven police brutality against black individuals. Why was that framed as uproar? Why did we even have to justify whether an athlete should have their own voice and still be supported, particularly when it highlighted a national issue with decades of indisputable statistical evidence? Why was America's response outrage. Let's look at the history of the NFL. The reality of the backlash to Kaepernick's protests being in the NFL is that organizations like the NFL or American football and even the MLB, the World Series is literally just the United States. Let's retitle that, okay? Until we start youth programs in other countries, providing them with baseballs, bats, and explaining the rules... Both of these organizations are USA-centered. They aren't played in the Olympics because they're not Olympic sports. They're the foundation of the USA is best because the USA is the only one doing it. And in a nation with such strong foundations of cultural racism, such as a league where 70% of the players are colored, yet only two of the teams have colored ownership, it is parallel to slavery. And in the NFL, 22 of the teams have been owned by the same family for the past 20 years. Even in 2018, only two of the 32 teams were owned by people of color which means as a football player, you have literally signed a contract exchanging your physicality for a sum. It's a rather large sum, but still. And since the average player retires by the age of 26, that means you need to figure out a way to physically push your body to unsustainable levels, which may have been decided without you know your actual input when you were younger, 
all for the glory of performing in stadiums of sweaty, greasy, overweight, middle-aged men who lost sight of their dicks years ago. But hey, those men have money, and if you're getting paid for it, I guess you can't technically consider it slavery, even though the principles you stand for as a person have been effectively brutally criticized by the media and reduced to non-importance just because your ring of white owners frowned at it. And I'm from a sports family too, so I'll admit, when he first started kneeling for that national anthem, in my mind, I sat there and went, hmm, well, let's see. In 2012, he replaced Alex Smith as the 49ers quarterback out of opportunity. Smith had a concussion, leading them to a Super Bowl appearance, their first since 1994. In 2013, he had a decent season, but then the years that followed had him in and out of the starting position. By 2016, he was yesterday's news, a decent quarterback, but the NFL is full of those. This is this must be a publicity stunt just to make it hard to cut him. And even if that were true, though, what is the harm in what he did? Why would it bother me at all that a mixed black child who was adopted by a white family went on to excel in academics and multiple sports until he landed at the University of Nevada, Reno, on a full scholarship wanting to talk about race. Children and adults who are adopted, first of all, already have a series of psychological considerations to their upbringings that would inevitably cause some confusion or cognitive dissonance, even with access to all of the best therapists and early interventionists. Children and adults who are anything other than white also face a huge array of subtle reminders of just where in society other people think you rightfully belong at every step in your life. I got bullied as a child and even then I knew it was rooted in jealousy, but it still hurt. Could you imagine people doing that at every stage of your life and never growing out of it no matter how successful you get? And as a woman in STEM, I'm now well aware of the discomforts of trying to forge your way into rooms that were gated to keep you out, of the pressure to be something because anything else is a waste, of wanting to have your voice be acknowledged and respected without feeling the need to validate yourself with an endless supply of evidence, scientific theory, and quantitative data. Your male colleagues can just give the answer and know it won't be questioned. You have to have two to three different bullet points to support it. My first conscious experience of this was really in college, which was only because I was blind to what criticism towards me as a person was rooted in years prior. So prior to college, I really didn't have many black men in my classes. Bashkar, my Indian gamer friend, who was great with computers in high school, which to my extent literally just meant that he could install Snake on my TI-83 graphing calculator, but he was the only minority. My football teammates were black. They just like weren't in the advanced classes. Maybe one to two black kids played soccer. I also dated a Hispanic appearing boy from like the neighboring high school, and my mom taught at all of the lower income area schools in the county for most of my adolescence. And I thought that Because I also had a difficult home life in a low-income area and we went to the same schools, that they had the same opportunities that I had, especially since I was friends with so many different people. 
But in reality, every opportunity I had was the initiative of my parents, like necessitating some standard of greatness. Those kids might have only been able to do that one thing that I just also happened to do with them. Whereas like my parents' home and all of our space for my creativity was also like funded by my grandparents, my grandfather's distinguished military career. Sure, like I put in the work behind the scenes, but the opportunities were dropped in my lap and all I had to do was show up. Nobody looked at me and doubted me once I got going. I had to keep my peppy mouth shut, but until, <laughs> but only until after I proved my worth on the field. And because I was so multifaceted, instead of being silenced, my voice was encouraged because it was like very different. Um, and my junior high school year, I wrote for my Tri-County newspaper's Athlete Diary, which was like a weekly column that I could tailor to my own interests. And I was encouraged to use my voice as an athlete. And because of my physical ability, it was respected on and off the field by those who were aware. How could it ever be normalized to think otherwise? But it's not just an NFL problem. As a child, I viewed sports with like the field and dreams, angels in the outfield, and little giants mentality. The American dream of underdogs prevailing is universally appreciated, a real fan favorite. So how is it then that we meet it with such disdain when it's presented to us in the form of racial inequality? How can the same percentage of people who cling to those replays for nostalgic comfort be so blind as to condemn it when it doesn't even interfere with the timing of the game? And at what point in the USA did we become so enthralled with sports, our consumerism culture, and our own egos as a nation that we neglected to realize sports are pastimes, a luxury, the result of having the time to focus on such things because the rest of our lives are going well enough that we can devote the time to games, at least within our country. Was it always like this? Like the very idea that we have so much time on our hands, we can have professional athletes, let alone intellectual professional athletes from all corners of our land coming together to run, skip, hop, jump, shoot, spin, whatever, for glory. All because they've been privileged enough to have the time to devote to something like running or swimming cannot exist without the rest of the community functioning within the realms of proper civilization. And as someone with multiple higher education degrees, I understand that I only get to study epidemiology and biochemistry because there are people who provide my food, make my clothes, take care of our national security, pick up the trash, sow the grain that I feed my horses, like make the communities that I travel between so safe. Yet somehow, in the event of a global pandemic, the chronic health effects of which we're definitely going to uncover in horror for years, which Joe Rogan did a significant amount of discrediting for the record, our athletes emerged as on the table of essential workers when our nation should have been putting the team on our back literally by doing what our fat fucking American selves have prepared our entire goddamn lives for, which is to stay at fucking home and drink, watch movies, play video games, fuck or masturbate for two to three weeks. Instead, we demanded sports teams to travel across the country, downplaying the risk to not just the players, but the hotel staff, the bartenders, even the coaches 
whose very designation as needing to go back to work for the money meant they definitely wouldn't have been able to afford their healthcare bills should they get coronavirus. Not to mention you're also endangering the lives of their families, those they interact with in public, purposefully or by chance, and contact tracing is a butterfly effect twistering out of control. Plus, in Florida, where the NBA opted to move the bubble to Disney for, they tied the relief funding to a business's ability to return back to work at X capacity, effectively removing any freedom of choice from whether they truly felt like it was safe or not. Or how we just created an entire generation of people that are now going to doubt science and potentially not wear a mask. And should a biological warfare attack occur, which might I point out is like the newest growing range of warfare over the last few decades, it like will necessitate our use of masks to prevent a plague. Like we're going to be fucked at this point. Um, Like nothing about that situation was handled with any level of sanity or logic. And as a nation, we should have used the time to highlight like why we still prioritize athletics. Um how to be active within the confines of your quarantine, notable movements spawned by athletes throughout our history. Athletes and athletics were our distractions, our games, and a luxury, not essential. And becoming a professional athlete in the United States is just another competition that removes the purpose behind athletics if you don't get to use it for anything meaningful like a voice. And removing the purpose behind athletics just makes it like any old job. But ambivalence doesn't sell out stadiums. Fans don't cry because they're neutral about a rivalry. So like almost every facet of our culture, the USA has warped our view of sports to be a capitalist-driven marketplace, such that our professional networks are effectively modern-day slavery in a lot of ways, particularly women's sports that only exist for the American consumer because it is tied to your paycheck, healthcare, housing, and dependent on your marketability or personal brand. Endorsements by major brands are now necessary for athletic advantage, and generally a collegiate education is the way to get there. So unless your sport peaks at a particularly strange time with gymnastics being less than 18 for global representation and triathletes commonly beginning their athletic journeys much later, like not even by your early 20s, um, but, you know, usually by your 20s, you're relatively tapped out of potential, which means that from a very early age, you're subject to representing a variety of brands on a state, national, or potentially global scale. And how do you sift through that to determine what you stand for? And when would you even have the time? Sponsorships by something like food companies that allow you to eat better quality, healthier meals for free, or reduced prices are a huge advantage, particularly since the American education system teaches so little about proper nutrition and our government subsidizes areas of the food industry that are less healthy for the American consumer. So you'll likely jump at the first contract you get, especially if you barely make over the poverty level of financial income from the season, even if the company is unethical or doesn't support your values, all because the promise of being the 1% of people that can get the money that gives you that hope that you cannot hate your life so much. 
And thank you to Ariana for finally putting out it out there that whoever said money can't solve your problems must not have had enough money to solve them. One brand builds into multiple sponsorships and hopefully those corporate brands then don't drop you when you speak out in favor of your own safety, health, or experience, even when it's the morally and ethically right thing to do. But this is America, the same country that allowed Hobby Lobby CEO, a religious conservative, to deny healthcare coverage on the basis of sex and his own personal religious beliefs to all of his female employees, despite Hobby Lobby being a national corporation that largely serves a customer base of females. Who am I to determine what constitutes ethics, though, or where to draw the line? Only God can judge you, but God isn't the only one who has to face the consequences of your actions, whatever helps you sleep at night. And particularly right now, America is claiming outrage over our pedophilia problem, as if this is new, or that Trump is somehow exempt from these corrupt circles of millionaires and generational wealth, despite being from them himself. Or that our pageantry circuits, cheerleading, gymnastics fixation, wasn't somehow capable of being massively exploited. Is it even capable to reduce exploitation in a world enshrouded in greed? We have Larry Nasser sexually assaulting hundreds of young girls for years, often with their parents in the same room. It's shuddering to think that that could have very easily, like, I could have been one of those girls had I just taken, like, a single different step in life. And if college is your route to get recruited, you likely needed to be able to afford like their costly summer camps and transportation to and from on top of the expensive costs of your travel select team, your own vehicle and gas because your, you know, your parents can justify driving an hour and a half in rush hour traffic after your high school practice to get you to travel ball. They had two other children to think about and pay for. Rarely do you hear the true underdog story anymore. You grew up on backyard baseball thinking you were going to be Pablo Sanchez, and instead you realized you were in dodgeball facing the purple cobras, only you didn't catch the rubber ball flying at you. You watched it zoom at your face with your hands tied behind your back and no way to defend yourself. So when the kind stranger that is Jerry Sandusky desecrates your innocence in a Penn State locker room only to be hidden for years because it was easier to pay people off and hope for the best than to actually do the right fucking thing, you stay quiet and thank yourself for him even noticing you. It must make you special. Stockholm Syndrome is a fucking bitch. Only it's not just the innocent children being abused for years unable to break free from the memories. It's the entirety of the American people doing the work and labor to be enjoyed at the whims of others who put in no actual work of their own, yet somehow magically control what happens to the numbers in your bank account. Let's take LeBron. Ringleader of the NBA gets his dick sucked by ESPN every day of the week, even when he's out of season, well-respected and particularly well-revered in the tragic light of Kobe Bryant's death, should have never agreed to start the stupid basketball games back up. You cannot tell me the same younger players who were Snapchatting from the bubble, the shitty cafeteria-style food they had, captioned with, you know LeBron ain't eating this, LOL, 
would have agreed to play if you had gone on TV, spoken about how sports needs to take a backseat as an example for, you know, like the health of our nation. Um, You and every other member of the NBA could have joined in the protests, leading teams to peaceful like sit-ins or powerful demonstrations to showcase the necessity to address these causes when coronavirus and the BLM movements first started. Like, thinking the solution was to dribble a basketball and shoot it at a plexiglass board just because, like, the, a name is on your shirt is completing, completely forgetting the purpose of sports. Like, bottom line is, like, we just really need to recenter our priorities as humans. Um, so let's think bigger. Let's look at the Olympics. The ancient Olympic Games were a religious festival to honor Zeus father of all Greek gods and goddesses. The athletes were all men, and beginning 776 BC, they raced, yay, for track, the most underappreciated sport. Um, The Olympics literally started off as a single race, followed by days of partying. Modern-day fraternity tailgates are the closest thing we have to this. Then, from 393 AD until 1896, they had rescinded into the shadows, an all-forgotten event, until Athens, Greece, once again, initiated hosting. Since 1896, the Olympics have only been canceled due to world wars, 1916, 1940, and 1944. The Olympic oath taken by officiants, athletes, and coaches alike address doing it for the glory of sport, for the honor of our teams, and in respect for the fundamental principles of Olympism. The values of which are excellence, friendship, and respect, all with the goal of building a better world. With some clever deductive reasoning, the purpose of the Olympics, the foundation of which performative sport in the USA is largely built on, is thus to facilitate camaraderie in the form of sport. I have a hard time believing the first Olympics with just a single track race as the competition would have a several day long festival that is was just like an insurmountable dick measuring contest by the winner who then asserted his physical dominance into every country just because they can in some gesturing tone for several days. Nobody likes that dude at the fraternity parties in modern day and nobody would have liked him then. Although Joe Rogan is the type of guy who gives that guy a spotlight. I also only say that like it's a surprise to believe that that's not how the Olympics was because the USA wasn't founded in 776 BC. So we weren't around to take something as cool as the Olympics and Jersey Shore it into that. So with many countries, sports may be the only way to garner international attention and hopefully leverage eventual refugee or immigrant status. Every year, the African athletes talk about things like bringing internet to their remote villages or digging a well for clean drinking water. Um, Distance runners talk about running without shoes. And as an epidemiologist, I sit there and I just picture the videos of guinea worm and other parasitic diseases native to their land their bare feet doesn't protect them from. But they don't have access or the money to like spend on luxuries like shoes. Like there's no other way. Meanwhile, the USA collects our 46 gold medals in Rio and accepts our global title as like freest country in the world, best in the land, paradise, yada yada. All while subjecting an athlete on our own soil, the supposedly land of the free, playing a sport 
only played within the United States to public condemnation, despite the fact that the NFL has an audience of 16.67 million fans per year in person, and then an additional 16 million network viewers every single game for the message on being more tolerable of 13% of our national population. A population which only exists over here because white people, aka we, stole them from their own continents, shoved them on wooden ships as a shitty free cruise, and then whipped them into submission to do things like picking fucking cotton in the same land you now play football on to potentially reach and resonate with. Somehow, though, the idea that we win more gold medals in a sporting competition is attributed to, like, global success. It preserves the idea that democracy is the best thing in the world. But who are we trying to prove that to? Other countries or ourselves? So the same people who howled in delight that, like, Tom Brady and Gronk played footsie in a kiddie pool, really highlighting their retirement to Florida with their season-starting loss, devalued cultural awareness and could, because as a nation, we set forth this forward public image of how that kind of behavior being socially acceptable and have lost sight of what kind of example we're setting forward for the world. And how do we condemn our international rivals like Russia or China for genocide when our own government is guilty of the same thing? And if we know that countries like Russia are doping and going to continue to find ways to cheat, why are we still trying to race alongside them in these desperate Olympic bids of superiority? Like that very mentality is what ended in Chernobyl. Why would we ever focus so largely on whether one of their athletes can jump half an inch further than one of ours? And like why we should set a global precedent that we permit that kind of behavior or encourage it? At what point do we as a nation step back and analyze our sports culture and say, this is not the example we want to set for the either the youth of America or the rest of the world? Like we have IOC rules in place where you can only represent your country's team's sponsoring brand. Even if the brand that sponsors you every other moment leading up to what, like, you qualifying for that Olympic team are, like, ethically sourced, sustainable, local, way more in need of the exposure than fucking Nike, and the athletes, the source of the exposure for it all, didn't have a say. I think it's this year that the rule got changed. Never mind the greater discussion of what the Olympics represents, friendship, respect, a better world, channeling global energy into sport, which again is supposed to be for fun, for progress. Before platforms like Instagram, Snapchat, OnlyFans, whatever your vice is, the only method for exposure was, you know, being photographed and seen or like in newspapers. So why have we as a nation, the proponents of a free world, consistently silenced that in this modern age of technology and the ability to share your voice, particularly when it's founded on a good thing? Isn't that the point of democracy, to share your opinion? 
But who structures where moderation lies? Is it the voice of someone who created his image around a sport glorifying gore, encouraging violence and bloodshed for the sake of entertainment? Joe Rogan epitomizes that mentality. He has been a contributing part of it. And the MMA is problematic. As such a fiercely like talented athlete across so many different sports, I do like to think my opinion that wrestling is far and away the most difficult sport on par with maybe only gymnastics for women holds a little bit of weight. I certainly won't get any refuting from wrestlers, although women also wrestle too now, which is pretty freaking cool, and like men also do gymnastics. Still, wrestling is one of the oldest forms of combat, existing across the globe regardless of geographical boundary or cultural values, and can even trace its Olympic reign to like the ancient Romans and its actual origins being present even in cave drawings. Anyone else just get a sad twinge <laughs> to the reminder of like Jon Snow showing Daenerys proof of the White Walkers? Like, what is it, season seven, season eight of Game of Thrones? Anyways, despite loving to touch on my themes of hating the patriarchy and toxic masculinity, there's something undeniably masculine about having the physical strength and mental wit to submit your opponent. I should know because I spent eight years on and off getting physically submitted oh so fucking willingly by the man who may very well be my Achilles heel at some point. Wrestling is undeniably commanding respect, like it has honor. Mixed martial arts, on the other hand, in capitalist America, is anything but. Most of my friends, also in their mid to late 20s who listen to Joe Rogan, listen as a result of his involvement with Dana White in the UFC. And don't get me wrong, I think martial arts are cool. I love the intensity with which they're studied, the necessity of mental focus. I hope my next venture in life includes some grappling training. Should I find an athlete or an outlet, I actually feel comfortable trying that in. I watched my dad and my brother freak out over the Rocky movies as a kid. I just couldn't grasp why anyone would opt to get the physical shit beat out of them or why it was glorified. Men are really just truly interesting creatures. Now, I'll give it to you. Like, is humanity predisposed to be drawn to gore? Is it even possible to thwart human nature into being good in any sense? Shouldn't it be better that we fulfill that need to create havoc, chaos, or war and channel it into sport? Hear me out. Our goal should be peace. Any sport that requires a level of gore to that extreme is no longer a sport. Like, there's a reason it's called cage fighting, and you're no better than those poor dogs the world has seemingly forgotten Michael Vick abused, all because he was decent with a football. The only reason we value the level of bloodshed and dehumanization of that as a culture is because we still cling to our patriarchal values blindly. We shouldn't encourage it for both medical reasons and psychological. Let's look at patriarchy in the United States. So because of the American Revolution, 1775 to 1783, and our social distancing from the Kingdom of Great Britain, Americans like to assume the world began in 1776, and anything over a 100-year timeline seems very out of touch, unthinkable, surely not still happening in the world. Like, definitely not worth mentioning in the news, and any suggestion that we approach things rationally or with logic is met with some bitter disdain from an only slightly more privileged class that would still benefit from all of it. 
This centric thought process is a similar fallacy to the first like scientists or people in modern day who probably just like to sit around, maybe smoke some weed and ponder life's mysteries, not unlike Joe Rogan, who proposed the earth was the center of the universe. Or how white Americans can't seem to grasp that just because they don't witness something happening personally doesn't mean it's not a completely valid concept. I saw a meme that said something along the lines of like, I don't understand Korean, but I still know it's a legitimate fucking language. And that really resonated. To some of you, it may be surprising to hear that I fully 1,816.3% support our U.S. military. As much as I disdain the patriarchal cycle of sexism, I appreciate the security of a strong military. I am not an idiot. I know what horrors of the world are out there. I grew up on army bases. My neighbors were secret service. I had helicopters landing in my apple orchard like it was normal. Sleeping on the floor of the Pentagon was like a fun treat for me. Um, Bring your daughter to work day. (laughs) Despite my daddy issues and still living under the reign of like heteronormalcy, I embrace our military wholeheartedly. It keeps us secure. But just as often as we have used it for like the common good of our civilians, we must also acknowledge the obvious flaws in its historic abuse of human rights. Like Vietnam was a disaster because our development of Agent Orange skirted the Geneva Convention guidelines by the premise of being a defoliant instead of corrosive biochemical warfare. We knew all along. My grandfather was living proof of that. He existed with just blood clots on his lungs from inhalation of it. Um, And then the Gulf War happened and like the military was suddenly in the good graces of the American people once more. Like, look, I get it. If we don't fight wars on other people's lands, then we're going to have to fight them on our own. But my point is our military has an equally treacherous history of getting involved solely for personal gain, which we'll now be answering for decades to come because of the generational trauma we've instilled upon regions and just hope they magically grow out of and like not hate us over. It sounds a lot like my biological father's logic to parenting. In the age of technology, this is just not sustainable. Like we need to acknowledge that like the results of our actions and cultural values. Prior to the dissemination of information, the military didn't have to answer for it as much which seems logical, particularly when travel was far less frequent. We didn't know if the earth was round. Some of us still don't. Kyrie Irving, how's that Duke education working out for you? Hashtag good day to be a Tar Heel. We can't just exhaust our own resources at whim and leave ourselves vulnerable, right? So like our military became focused on controlling the narrative. Like our media became dramatic, sensationalized fiction, and our presidency has since become reality television instead of actual reality. However, our military culture, despite being, you know, responsible for the technological boom that it is today via the commissioning of lick leaders to develop the internet, thrived off of misinformation and distraction of human attention, which it did well before technology as well. In World War II, we had Japanese internment camps yet slapped an apology on it on the basis of war hysteria, $43,000 in today's money, which like maybe is that enough for a down payment on a house? I don't know. It won't even pay off my loans and like tried to move about our days. 
we've long disguised questionable immigration policy as protecting American workers, even though we branded our nation under the field of dreams mentality, yet after building it, now suddenly don't want others to come? Not to mention the fact that we had the audacity to grant Native Americans citizenship in 1929 as if it was some victory for them, or as if they weren't here long before the rest of us, even though they couldn't even vote in several states until 1968. Imagine constantly being relocated at the whim of some random person in fancy pilgrim clothes like Cam Newton in his little COVID NFL debut. That was inevitably painful, tragic, and awful. Yet somehow they were the savages. We forced them to do the Oregon Trail. Fuck this. Pocahontas was absolutely right. We should have a new generation of horror films focusing on like the survival or death stories of some of these just grievous racial injustice moments throughout U.S. history from the perspective of the hunted. Like they, they might exist already. I'm too much of a weenie to watch horror movies alone. And I've lived alone for like four years now. So it's very possible I'm just out of touch. But with technology being so closely intertwined with like military advancement, suspicious cultural changes have become harder and harder to spin in a positive light. So World War II reassured everyone that we disagreed with white supremacy. We publicly fought against Nazi values, yet Nazis flocked to Charlottesville, Virginia, and were welcomed at our current president's campaigns for re-election. And with the 1936 Olympics and Jesse Owens, the black U.S. track phenomenon, gold medals symbolized that the world disagreed with eugenics. We publicly disagreed with dehumanizing others from a global perspective, but kept our barriers in place within the bounds of our national lives. In between periods of war, Americans were just content enough for the stability, like the peace, the consistency, that they didn't have to, the energy to question why they kept having it disrupted. The early 1950s was Korea. The mid-1950s until the mid-1970s was marked by Vietnam. Then the nuclear threat, the space race, the physics became plastered across newspapers, broadcast, even on novel television. The Soviet Union, the remnants of which are still some of our most flaunted Olympic competitors, were clearly established as a threat to our national security. Total domination over them in whatever ways we could would secure our position within the world. The entertainment industry continued to develop, and the 1975 predecessor of UFC emerged with the Rocky film starring Sylvester Stallone as the all-American symbol of blood, sweat, and tears, born in Philadelphia, land of the Liberty Bell, in July of 1945. For those who don't know, Rocky embodied the U.S. resilience of never giving up, overcoming obstacle after obstacle. Over the course of five movies, eventually it was acknowledged that like his glorified boxing career and misplaced value on blood, sweat, and tears over physical health, because the reality of what it means to live in a developed world means that it should, realistically, never come to resorting to that, resulted in brain damage. But, you know, the kind that was normal for boxers. I'm sorry, but what? 
With CTE and like criminology discussions involving repeat abusers' brain development, especially the known psychological profile that serial killers have often experienced repeat head traumas, why are we encouraging such devastation for the sake of sport? I understand needing to be able to defend yourself and training for such adequately, but what are we teaching people if we allow people to be purchased for a fight gambled on and flaunt that lifestyle as desirable? Even when Conor McGregor is in the news for some despicable act, or when they might literally die on screen broadcast to millions, even their own children. Don't even get me started on John Jones. The necessity... For an easier life and financial security should never be so desirable that you incentivize wanting to inflict brain damage on someone for fun and think it's ethical. And even if you don't think it's ethical, it's kind of like the topic of clinical trials in the U.S. If that's your only option, is, isn't that coercion? And at least WWE is scripted, fake, and centered around acting. But anger is the one emotion that men have universally been allowed to show within the military patriarchal system. Even 30 to 40% of police officers were involved in incidents of domestic violence. It's just man. My grandfather, a New York City cop, took a strong hand to parenting. My other grandfather colonel in the U.S. Army, even stronger one, but they had stressors. Their jobs were hard. It was always a mistake, justified punishment, and sports let them get out that frustration, that anger, that loss when they had to keep it together every other aspect of the day. They set forward that strong example, and we just accept that men are like that. So how can we fault them for enjoying endorsing it with addictive behaviors, gambling, fighting, drugs, when there's nothing wrong with a little indulging from time to time? If sports is one of like the only major ways that the American male has been permitted to show emotion for something without feeling the bounds of public scrutiny for like the vulnerability of their emotion, how can we condemn the most barbaric, raw, return to our roots facade that is the MMA circuits, like the NFL, etc., When these people are adults willingly entering into these contracts, how many Chris Benoit tragedies is it going to take? How many Aaron Hernandez situations, OJ Simpson, our love of glorifying the bloodshed that is the UFC, NFL, and professional sports when we reduce it to just a game is perpetuated by the leaders of our nation only representing military service values and don't ask, don't tell style of progressiveness. God forbid we acknowledge a weakness to the world, even when not doing so, actually weakens our citizens. We need to begin setting a precedent that men do not need to be these macho Arnold Schwarzenegger style meatheads who insert themselves with relevance into every facet of culture with the misplaced confidence that your opinion must surely be the right one, as white men are prone to do. We need to move away from that method of debate as a nation. Like we need to remember the collective pause quarantine offered and how bottom line promotion of physical and mental health should be a priority. 
Our sports culture should logically serve as a huge database for that, but we are never going to move towards that with a moderator whose cultural fan base includes a large section of viewers who subscribe to the riches of violence, of chosen barbary. Never mind the wives, the girlfriends, the children, viewers who have to watch your inevitable and almost assuredly mental spiral particularly later in life, which you're not considering at this point, and have Stockholm Syndrome into thinking it's valiant that the father of their child would put himself in the risk of brain injury because the promise of financial luxury is that nice. But is there even a way to limit violence? How do we know it isn't inherent to human culture? Even the Bible portrays humans as susceptible to sin. It isn't about removing the violence altogether. I'm not saying we need to completely disband UFC or stop the MMA, you know, circuits from happening. It's about removing glorifying bloodshed whenever it is necessary. I'm not showcasing that as a possible priority to the American people in a time where unity should be held above all. And encouraging violence root deep within our military pride though and existed long before modern gaming systems flooded male feeds fun fact the cia even delved deep within the world of warcraft at one point there's definitely a reason i play call of duty and do everything male dominated when possible i learned tactics of how to infiltrate and dismantle from an early age but gaming systems weren't here to make our children more violent nor would taking them away solve anything Our cultural emphasis on military history had already secured that hundreds of years prior, and it would continue to exist for generations to come, regardless of what we do at this day. Yet, we pointed the finger at the technology because holding man accountable is blasphemous. How dare we learn from our experience? With technology, the dissemination of information, accessibility of global travel, the necessity for action, particularly in light with what we know about global warming, climate change, and environmental values of the importance of conservation, it should be our global priority to promote peace, education, sustainability, and collaboration. We have the accessibility technology and education to do it. We need to quit pretending like letting some states live in the modern world and some exist on a Westworld-style loop of nostalgic commodity is permissible. We shouldn't set a standard of devaluing life at crossing of our border. We definitely shouldn't be carrying out forced sterilizations on ICE detainees in the state of Georgia, an act of which is going to be referred to under the context of genocide once the inevitable dozens of other whistleblowers step forward into the national spotlight, only to soon dull our senses with overstimulation. That is the world that making politics of game of chess has become. Only highlighted by the proposition of this debate at all. We've always fixated the spotlight on the lunacy instead of the bigger picture. And the bigger picture is humanity. And as humans born within the United States of America, we are thrust into an international spotlight of politics that was chosen for us due to the nature of our familial history. And just like Kourtney Kardashian, at one point we may have been along for the ride, but we're now being faced with the necessity of getting the fuck out of the influential mess we've created to devote time to what really matters. And what really matters is supposed to be love and empathy and being able to spend the time not worrying about your physical safety, your mental or physical health, or the thousands of those 
who you know are going to experience the same level of torment that you've experienced. Nobody who has been abused and has actually healed wants someone else to go through what they had to go through. That doesn't mean forgiveness and complete disregard either, but it means acceptance. And as citizens of the USA, we need to start accepting that there are always going to be an insurmountable amount of international threats, thanks to decades and generations of white conservative colonialism. We legitimately owe it to the world to undeniably encourage peace above all which means not acting like the sore fucking loser when our Olympic medal count drops because LeBron and the boys need to stay home and protest in Lafayette Square instead of resuming to their petty games as long as they're wearing t-shirts that say the names. And protests don't always have to be loud, you know? And don't, you know, you don't need to condemn the few that have gotten violent on the many, many more that have not. In fact, like, you know, some of the most prolific moments in history were silent. The Greensboro Four were so incredibly effective because they gave absolutely no excuse for their stance to be undermined. But we shouldn't still have to be silenced until you just accept that we're sitting there. Do we think we're going to mend any international relations by condemning all Muslims as terrorists? Like, you realize we've had like five or six white domestic terrorist incidences since, including what I would argue is the current state of the presidency, because causing now generations of Americans to question science and logic, return to eugenic-driven values of patriotic education, uterus collectors and state-sponsored facilities in Georgia, pulling women from cages and removing their reproductive rights, is surely going to create a significant amount of broiled hatred within the bounds of our own country. You'd have thought we would have learned. And to all of the Christians, Mary and her little man are knocking at your inn's door and you guys are turning her away. She's going to have to suffice birthing Jesus in some mangy stable all because you didn't want to admit we have a hospitality problem in this nation structured around our necessity to compete. Militarily, economically, athletically, whatever. We have to be the best. And being good at stuff does breed hatred. So maybe hate for the USA is inevitable. It breeds jealousy, contempt, anger from those who have less. They don't see the work that goes on behind the scenes, the practices, the workouts, the sweat, the ice baths, the lonely cries, wondering if it's all going to be worth it. But why would we want other countries or like half of our population to suffer in the same way that we did? Why does our corporate strength cry that jobs are being outsourced yet not question why our citizens maybe can't afford the cost of goods in a way that affords a reasonable living wage for our workers? Um, Why are we accepting that the same sports companies we revere, Nike especially, has exploited fast fashion and sweatshops? Or that Jeff Bezos can exploit the majority of the world and just not give back to it in any proportional rate? It's 2020. We know that's not acceptable. It's time to speed it up.
Bottom line is we're never going to achieve peace, the ability to rest comfortably for years on end without the looming threat of an ill-conceived draft if we continue to pretend like the way we've treated other nations isn't criminal. But you don't get that with a host who paved his way commentating modern-day gladiators, the people who have no other focus in life that they can possibly see as like a healthier or more constructive use of their time than needing to like achieve glory by being a showy celebrity parading around in their boxers and exposing themselves to unsuspecting women in bars or the ones who get pulled over once, twice, three times you're out at the old ball game of the heart of America's issues. Like where we tried to pretend like sequestering prostitution and gambling to a cheap knockoff version of the wonders of the world and selling it as magical was going to prevent addictive behaviors from occurring elsewhere in the land. And it was just going to, you know, solve the ones that we removed casinos from. And the American people aren't gladiators who chose to step into that ring, getting beaten down into submission, grappling into torment, your stats flashing across the screen, watching compartmentally removed from the violence. We need to stop treating their lives like a sport and confront the reality of the world we want to foster. Let's take a brief step back and look at the political history within the United States. The Declaration states all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Our culture of rights was solidified with extending it to white male property owners, from there on out marking a culture bound by valuing everything at property level, disregarding non-tangible abstract concepts such as like sentiment, intellect, and arbitrary worth. At the time, only 6% of the population was able to vote with these requirements. Slaves, or virtually the majority, if not all, of black people in the U.S., became representative of three-fifths of a person for House of Representatives representation. And despite the Bill of Rights, 130 years of courts subjectively determined a person was still only people with property or white men which showed that the mentality was not a thing of the past, even with our supposed rights. And in 1807, women were specifically excluded from voting through an unconstitutional act, yet the sentiment fell on deaf all-male ears in court. My own grandfather would continue to embrace that judgment to me well into the 2000s. Then the American Civil War of 1861 to 1865 passed, a war within our own borders, amongst our own citizens, amassing bloodshed of nearly one million of our own citizens. Our industrialization of war also set the stage for military prowess globally in World War I, World War II, and so on. This war alone is arguably the rock skipping across the pond, like the stage one of the butterfly effect, the moment the camera pans out and goes, so you're probably wondering how I got here, like their fucking Emperor Cusco in the Emperor's New Groove, sad llama form and all. My great-great-grandfather was a prisoner of war and Union general during the Civil War, and our family home in Missouri is now apparently a historically preserved landmark because it was used as a hospital during the war. I'm going to admit, I breathe a sigh of relief that 
my family wasn't on the other side. Didn't want an Andy Bernard moment. But let's not forget, Susan B. Anthony used this time to once again point out the hypocrisy of the Equal Protection Clause not being inclusive of women. The 1920s came and went. White women could vote. Finally, my people. Susan B. Anthony still could not. 1964 accompanied the Civil Rights Act, so black people could finally vote without restriction. Do we think people magically changed their opinions, though? Nah. 2008 marked the first African-American president, and we've yet to see a female leader. In fact, our closest chance to a female leader, an undeniable symbol of feminism for generations of future women in the United States for hundreds of years to come, was Hillary Clinton. It was a joke laughable at best. The Democratic Party threw up their next in line, someone they thought would be a symbol of like Puritan work ethic, and women were met with a symbol of complicitness in an era of hashtag me too, where silence is not enough. We were taunted with the choice of a woman who publicly humiliated another young woman on national television who was in a submissive position to her husband, the President of the United States, to set the example for generations of young women in the USA? You have got to be kidding me. Never mind the fact that she remained married to the man throughout her campaign on feminism and remains married to this day. Though I operate under the assumption that she doesn't want to have to testify or reveal any secrets about their marriage and it's far too complicated to ever unweave at this point. So girl, I feel ya. Also, I'm an open marriage kind of gal. I can even be persuaded to see like growth and forgiveness after cheating, namely because I think people are inherently selfish in this day and age. (laughs) But a large issue with our culture is our politicians' inability to be more transparent about their actual perceptions. That political guy in Florida who was found in the hotel room with the male stripper who OD'd himself, um, checked himself into rehab instead of highlighting the Miami LGBTQ community struggle with HIV and AIDS and proper use of PrEP or the commonality of like the swinger lifestyle. But no, instead, like we had a woman who still publicly stands by her husband after running on a platform almost solely on it being time for a woman. This is like how obnoxious it is when every single girl power movie has to go out of its way to stress the girl power theme. If you have to assert your dominance, you probably don't have any. Like you can't endorse girl power and womanhood, but not publicly address the concern over setting an example to young women and especially young girls that staying with a cheater is okay or that you shouldn't have further contributed to this woman hating narrative. Fuck the culture. Like, the introductory three blog posts that spiral into, like, my Ghislaine Maxwell, Jeffrey Epstein rabbit hole of a childhood should explain why I hate her so much. Like, my logic at the time kept weighing, I can deal with another shitty white male, but I can't have the first female president be this with what could Donald Trump possibly actually do in four years. Even with all of those heavy considerations and, like, Thankfully, a friend who talked some sense into me, not that it did any good, I could not have imagined the breakdown of our democracy into our current situation. I thought it was insane that my sociology professor cried and talked about creating a safe space in her election. 
the night of the election uh, or the morning after for anyone who is uncomfortable. Yet four years later, I'm over here like, these are our choices? These. What the actual fuck? And the political history in the United States, that constitution that people who support Donald Trump and the GOP love to wave as a perfect set of guidelines on the basis of their religious values, are completely ignoring the fact that those same political idols of theirs wanted the separation of church and state, which means not voting on the basis of your religion. Yet our political history is still undeniably warped by white conservative Christian values, a fact that we can all admit just by objectively looking at the legislative development of the United States Code of Conduct for not being shitty human beings in 2020. And that if you have to tell someone you're in power, you probably aren't. That's basically how I feel about religion as a whole. You lost me for good when you were overjoyed by Justin Bieber endorsing a megachurch pastor wearing $3,000 Yeezys in the state of Texas, even though the same church is pro-life, despite science proving that pro-life legislation increases the rates of infant and maternal mortality, and you also claim to care about saving those babies. I'm sorry, but no. The Republican political party has become hypocritical at its heart. Ruth Bader Ginsburg's body isn't even cold yet, and the grade A certified cunt and not the wet-ass pussy Cardi B, Megan the Stallion goddess kind, that is Mitch McConnell, wants to vote her successor in, despite that same logic being presented to him as why a similar vote was postponed until the 2016 election was complete. So I struggle because 65% of our total population is still willing to believe the word of a book because they believe in the spirituality of goodness on faith alone, but won't believe scientific fact on systemic cultural issues rooted in the foundations of our society. So when the opportunity to actually vote for goodness in programs that promote a more sustainable earth, a better community, properly coordinated health care is presented to them, they make up some excuse as to why they prefer it to be the individual's choice, even though there's 200 plus years of research as to why that does not work in just our country and thousands of years of research for why this doesn't work in civilizations across the globe. The only reason we even have foundations like the EPA is because we had to force chemical industries in Toms River, New Jersey to stop purposefully disposing of hazardous waste improperly, allowing it to seep into the watershed and causing significantly higher incidences of extremely rare childhood cancer. But with small government, the EPA wouldn't exist. Do you actually want to save the children? Assuming the world is good is a naive way of thinking that is just ultimately harmful to those of us who had to learn that the hard way. The Catholic Church's sector of Christianity couldn't even save their own children. In fact, they were shielding the abusers from punishment because they were worried about the PR on the faith. That's not appropriate. Additionally, if you're voting in an election, not even for your own rights, but for your ability to have control over someone else's rights, you're no longer voting for individual choice. You're voting for control over someone else, call it what it is. 
But that's hard with a religion that stresses the importance of the individual. Because it really is true that in an emergency situation, you can only be helpful if you take care of yourself first. That old like oxygen mask on an airliner analogy. Still, we need to recognize the necessity to employ other people with the tools to make decisions over themselves. We can't leave things like mental and physical health care, protection from the law, which also is supposed to help us. The law is literally supposed to protect citizens. We shouldn't need protection from it. The ability to afford housing up to faith because this is reality, not some idealistic delusion or hope. And unlike delusion, in reality, we actually have the ability to change it. We just have to accept it first. So despite other countries with impressive quality of life, longevity, and distribution of health indicators existing, we refuse to acknowledge our own system needs to be revitalized because we're scared to admit that we were wrong. But isn't religion based around forgiveness and acceptance and learning as you grow? Like you constantly revisit the same text and get new context from it. So shouldn't we normalize the same thing with society and our law? The fact that Megan Rapino, a known lesbian, would receive any kind of backlash for using her position to highlight the reality of the LGBTQ population is ridiculous. And the fact that our media would glorify that, encourage the divisiveness, and for this to be normal is just pathetic. We can't keep claiming to be so advanced as a civilization when we only legalized gay marriage federally in 2015. But 65% of the population is centered around Christian values, and that may seem like a lot. It's certainly still the majority, so why should we change that at all? Let's think about what that means, though, in other terms. It means that out of every five Americans, roughly two of those are not going to be that way. They're going to have different values. Does this mean they're terrible people? Fuck no. Objectively, looking at all of the religions around the globe, there's a lot of fucking similarities. Concepts of a higher power only differ in like who or what the higher power is. Themes of morality, righteousness, being the best version of a human tend to involve similar themes. I personally don't feel the necessity to characterize what I think influences the universe. I accept that as a human. I don't need to know all. Ignorance truly is bliss. I've had near-death experiences and there was just peace, acceptance, contentment. For the life of me, I cannot grasp the necessity to feel as if you have to prove to others that what you believe in, which, again, is founded on faith and faith alone, aka there is no tangible proof you can show them, must be the right way. The point is, we should still include those two people in the things that we do. I'm sure they have a lot to offer. The purpose of the USA being the best is that we get to cherry pick our favorite aspects of other cultures and bring them here to exist in one place in unity. Didn't any of you watch Zootopia? So I guess my argument isn't so much about Joe Rogan or what he represents as an individual. Truth be told, I recognize his comedic worth. I listen intermittently. Shout out to Miley for being the bad bitch who can always put someone in their place. You are my idol. But the very fact that he even thinks the general public should want him to moderate a presidential debate under the current state of our country with what may be one of the most important elections for a global stage of symbolizing what kind of progression we're going to move forward with 
Or should I say backward, because if Trump wins, I am seriously considering seeking asylum overseas purely for mental health and peace of mind, because I cannot live in whatever Nazi Germany-style regime he wants to reinvent. It's a travesty. Sports have historically paralleled our international relations and cultural movements within our own country. Black men could represent the USA globally before they could even vote. You realize how fucked up that is, right? Like, Jesse Owens was a symbol of defiance to Adolf Hitler, yet would have been lynched had he not had his gold medal with him walking through some towns in Alabama. We boycotted the 1980 Summer Olympics to protest the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan and 31 years later started the War on Terror. And we do set a global precedent for acceptable behavior. The world does watch us. So no, we don't need Joe Rogan to debate Joe Biden and Donald Trump like we should further encourage our presidential elections to resemble some mockery that is ESPN's The Ocho instead of discouraging the circus that has been allowed to perform so long? We shouldn't have to debate the topics that will inevitably be discussed, whether Black Lives Matter. Is it humane to perform significant surgical operations on prisoners against their will if it removes their ability to propagate or remain in this country? Whether we should be protecting consumers, addressing climate change. This is not the world we want to encourage. This election isn't about a candidate or a presidential debate. It's about our values for humanity.